Welcome to the Gregory House podcast. This is Shepherding by Father Brett Kroll. So today we're talking about shepherding or the care of souls. Um, And because that's how we're defining shepherding, um, it doesn't matter if you are leading a church or have a, quote, pastoral role on our staff. Um, If you are discipling anyone or caring for someone's soul, that's shepherding. Uh, but before I, you know, get into it too much, I want to begin with an exercise. Just turn to your neighbor, the person next to you, or maybe two or three of you, and see if in ten words or less you can come up with a definition for shepherding. Okay. Let's hear what you came up with. I think we got ten words exactly. Caring and protecting of sheep, regardless of number of legs. (laughs) Okay. Does anybody else even want to go after that? Who else does? Okay, Blake. It's hard to top that one, but I'll give it a shot. Um, Seeking a fullness um, for Christ's body. Fullness? Yeah. Interesting. Why did you land on that word fullness? Well, um, I was thinking more along like the parable of the, the good shepherd, and you know, he has the, the 99 sheep, and because uh, one has wandered off, and the number 100 representing the sign of kind of perfection, fullness, completeness, and so he goes and brings it back, and all the other sheep rejoice because now there's a fullness to the body. Mm. And so I think uh, seeking that, the fullness of the body is... Seeking a fullness of the body, bringing it to completion. I like that, which kind of means like let's make sure all, all the parts are there and working together. Also could apply to an individual person, seeking for fullness, wholeness, healing. Great. Anybody else? Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Steve started this. I just said picking up a lot of poop. Okay. Wait. All right. <laughs> no one else gets to answer any more questions into the microphone. It's ironic that I'm the one saying that. But. So a couple key texts about shepherding. We'll, we're not going to look at all of these. Um, but if you want a refresher and you want to know where in the Bible... Uh, the key texts, and perhaps these are not um, new to you, but Ezekiel 34, it's a really important chapter in the Old Testament. And we will look at that in just a little bit. John 10, of course, the Good Shepherd. John 21, we'll look at that in a little bit. And then the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus. Uh, it's true those do aim a little bit more at what we would consider a head pastor kind of role. So there's more about leadership Um, But there is also a good bit about just the person of a shepherd um, and the other elements of shepherding that that do apply regardless of whether you are a head pastor or simply just caring for others. 1 Peter 5. um, And then Gregory's pastoral rule, which Amy highlighted on on week one. I was reading in Michael Ramsey's The Christian Priest Today. He was archbishop. He was the ABC, um, Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 60s and one of the best. Um, and I was just leafing through some of his stuff, and, and at the end, he quoted somebody from a long time ago. Let's see if I can find it. 
Alcuin wrote to Eanbald, who was then Archbishop of York in the 8th century, wherever you go, let the pastoral book of St. Gregory be your companion. Read and reread it often, that in it you may learn to know yourself and your work and have before your eyes how you ought to live and teach, and we would say, and to pastor. So this really is the gold standard, um, Gregory's pastoral rule. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. But there's no replacement for you, as LeVar Burton would say. Don't take my word for it. Go and read it yourself. Reading rainbow? Hands? Show of hands? All right. So God loves shepherds. He has a special place in his heart for shepherds. Think about it. Abraham, what was his profession? Shepherd. And of course, Isaac and Jacob. Even Moses, when he ran away from Egypt for 40 years in Sinai, he was taking care of sheep in the wilderness. That was going to come back later as important when he was taking care of sheep in the wilderness again. David. Where is it? It's maybe one of the Psalms. I found, he found David. He took him from tending the sheep. Is that an accident? No. The heart that David acquired and the skills he acquired watching over the sheep is what prepared him and equipped him and qualified him for kingship. So when we see the, the nativity and, you know, the cute animals and Mary and and Jesus and Joseph is there, and then the shepherds coming. Why are the shepherds there? What do you always hear? Oh, because God loves the humble and the poor, which of course is true. And yes, the, the shepherds were humble and poor, but isn't it also perhaps him saying, these people represent so much of my heart? Again, so much of the Old Testament, so much of the people of Israel has to do with shepherding. And then God in Ezekiel 34 and in John 10, the good shepherd, identifies himself as a shepherd. So God loves shepherds. God is a shepherd. There's something primal and core in our understanding of our relationship to God when we get into shepherding. Another key thing just to keep in mind at the beginning, and we will come back to this uh, throughout, is that shepherds are always sheep first. So any of us who take on the role of shepherds, and again, that in some way is all of us at certain points, we are sheep first. So Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 3, being examples to the flock. Examples of what? How to be a sheep. Because how are they going to learn how to follow Jesus? By watching, first and foremost, how you follow Jesus. And so this lends itself to a certain humility towards those we serve. Like Jesus said in Matthew 23, which Matt preached at, at Will's ordination so beautifully, Jesus said, remember, you are all what? Brothers. You are all on the same level. And on the day of judgment, you won't get any extra points for having been in pastoral care or leadership. You'll be judged the same as any of the other sheep. And so now, yes, there is at times, and for some of us, positions of honor and leadership that are functional. A church needs leaders. A church needs those who can uh, function as, as heads and leaders. But at the end and at the bottom and at the core, we're all sheep. So that humility of Matthew 23, we're all brothers and sisters. Um, 
But knowing ourselves as sheep first, before we're shepherds, is also important as we grow in the skill of tending and feeding sheep. Why? Because we learn how to care for sheep as we watch and notice how Jesus is caring for us. And how many times have you received a lesson from the Lord or He's spoken to you or given you a word that even later that same day you're going to turn around and use for somebody? And don't discount that. Don't say, oh, that doesn't count. That's not wisdom because I'm cheating. I just, I just heard that earlier today. As Father Stephen would say, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. That's not cheating. That's God in his providence and his grace feeding you with the same thing that he's going to have you feed somebody else. And that's sometimes that immediate. It happens on the same day. If not, just over our lifetime, the ways that we see Jesus caring for us, tending us, correcting us, is how we're going to do that for others. So it's actually important in our skill set as shepherds to know that we're sheep first and to watch how Jesus tends for us, how he tends us, how he cares for us. Uh, of course, you, got, you want to be careful when you're pastoring somebody that you don't insert too much of your own story. Like, oh, I was arrested in high school for burglary too. Let me tell you all about it. I can so identify with you. You want to be careful how much of your own story you share and how much you're identifying. But all that to say, your own experience is really important. And finally, on this piece, the quality of the food with which you feed others is directly related to the quality of your own feeding on the Lord. As Jesus said in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says, abide in my love. And then he goes on to say, just a couple verses later, as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. So we receive the love of the Father through Jesus and abiding in that love. It's with the same love, not another kind of love. It's with that same love that we love others. So what we are receiving from the Lord and how we're feasting on him directly impacts how then we're feeding others. And the quality of that feeding is directly related to how much we are putting ourselves in the Lord's presence and receiving from him. All right, let's move on now and get into the meat of this talk, God's vision for the care of souls. If you've got your Bible, do now open to Ezekiel 34 and grab a pen. And, and Ella and those of you listening via podcast who are probably you know, driving around somewhere right now as you hear my voice, my apologies. You need to pull over and stop multitasking. Um, pull out your Bible, get your pen. I want you to read through Ezekiel 34, and you can just do this on your own. Uh, you don't need to do this with a partner. Just read through Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through, uh, stop, at, stop at 11. That's good enough. And I've put seven blanks there. I want you to see if you can write out the job description of a shepherd from Ezekiel 34. Can you do it? There will be a test. And no. There's nothing about the number of legs of the sheep. So just, just put that out of your mind right now. So Ezekiel 34 is an indictment. It's what the false shepherds have failed to do. But if we flip that and turn it on its head, we can see in it a job description of what God would like us to do. 
Um, also, later in the chapter, if you were to continue reading, you would see a repetition of the same list of things that God then says, this is what I'm going to do. So, let's look especially at verse 2, uh, halfway through. Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? So, that's number one on the list of the job description. Feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, so strengthening the weak is number two. The sick you've not healed, healing the sick. The injured you've not bound up, binding up the injured. The straying you've not brought back, bringing back the strays. The lost you have not sought, rescuing the lost. With force and harshness you've ruled them, rule with meekness. So those are the seven. Feed the sheep, strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, Bring back the strays, seek the lost, and rule with meekness. There's a lot of beneficial meditating we could do if we were to spend our whole time in Ezekiel 34. We're going to move on to John chapter 10, but uh, I could just commend Ezekiel 34 as a chapter to go back to. <clears throat> Just refresh yourself and say, are there people in my life that fit into these categories? Am, am I remaining open to uh, these different sorts? And you'll notice it's a spectrum. The, the faithful, the strong, the healthy, they're still a part of, of, of that job description, feeding the sheep. The faithful need our attention too. Not just the sick and the injured and the wounded and the broken and the straying and the lost. So there's, there's room for everyone in that job description and a call to be attentive to the whole flock of God. But it is beautiful, isn't it, that along with feeding the faithful, there is a specific call to the injured, the weak, uh, the hurting, the broken, the straying, and the lost. All right, John 10. You can turn over to John 10. Jesus and the Good Shepherd. I should say Jesus, the good shepherd. The beginning of chapter 10, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, who does, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. And now listen to this especially. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So if, if I were to give you my definition for shepherding, uh, my less than 10 words, it would be to know and care for the people of God. The sheep know a shepherd's 
voice. So that means the shepherd's got to be with the sheep, among the sheep. The shepherd has to have the smell of the sheep. I think in a book by Tim Keller on preaching, he's counseling preachers in their 30s and young preachers. He says, don't spend gobs and gobs of time on your sermons. Be among the people of God. That's the, that's the most important sermon prep you can do. Know their needs, know their heart's desires, know their pain, know, their, know what makes them tick. Be among the sheep, have the smell of the sheep on you. How will they know our voice? How will they know the voice of a shepherd if, if they're never around us and we're never around them? So the people you're caring for, they, they must know your affection as well. So it's your voice speaking affection. Love Matt's sermon from a month and a half ago on, on Acts 20 where he talked about the, the necessity of, of pastoral leadership. You know, don't follow anybody who's never spoken an affectionate word over you, I think is something Matt said. That's totally true. And if you ever get to know or read about real shepherds, those whose actual job is tending sheep, you know that they love their sheep. They have affection for them. Um, perhaps sheep are those animals that you can have an oxytocin bond with. If you know about oxytocin, this bonding hormone, we can have oxytocin bonds with dogs, which is why you're really sad when your dog dies. Cats don't have oxytocin, so you can't have an oxytocin bond with a cat, which makes so much sense. Probably sheep are in the category with dogs. But shepherds love their sheep. And even with shepherds who have way more than a, a hundred, like a thousand sheep in their flock, they will know individual sheep. They all look the same to us. A shepherd will know, even in a flock of a thousand sheep, will know each one and know their name. So find places where you're connecting with the people of God. Who are you discipling? Who are you shepherding? Uh, last year, for the last couple of years, I, I love Matt. I'll keep, I'll keep picking on him. He came to me and he said, I want to lead a res group, even though he's pastor over a large church and has other duties and is in mission, you know, on the mission wing of things. He said, I, I still... I still want to care for a, a small little flock. There's some people I want to really get to know and shepherd them. And even this year, he's not leading a res group, but he's still asking the question, who am I going to disciple? And he's gathering a group of young men around him. So he just has that instinct. There's always got to be somebody that I'm pouring into. Now, if you do have children, you're, of course, shepherding them first and foremost. Those of us who are called to the vocation of pastoral work I think it's a good thing for us to always have somebody even beyond our own children as well that we can say, this year and in this season, here's who I'm pouring into and shepherding. So who are you shepherding? And it is really important because what you learn in shepherding one or two or three people, you'll be surprised at the way that that transposes to caring for a flock of a thousand. Because people are all the same. There's so much overlap and similarity. The, the human heart and the conditions of the human heart, there is a lot of overlap. And yes, all people are different and distinct. But So how are you connecting with the people of God? And, uh, the party we threw a week and a half ago, great example. Caroline said, I know we can't do this, but we should every weekend have a party like that. And wasn't it so good just to be out there on the South Lawn and just connecting with our people? 
for no other reason. We weren't necessarily in pastor mode, even though, of course, you're always a pastor. You're never not a pastor. But just to be with our people. So where are those other places and times that you're just with the people of God and enjoying them, getting to know them? The intentionality with hospitality is is an important part of our culture here at Resurrection of how we shepherd people. And I don't know if anybody does this better than Stuart and Catherine. They've modeled this so well. I mean, how many of us have been in their home how many times? And, And over the years that you get to know them, the more you're there and you're in their space. For a church as large as this and a diocese that they're leading, I, I don't think we even realize how remarkable and rare that is. And so for us to, to model after them and to be inviting people into our homes, thinking about how can I be intentional, even with those that I'm not intensely pastoring and shepherding, are there ways, are there rhythms and patterns that I can still be having people in my home, getting to know them, or I'm in their home? Again, as Matt loves to invite himself over to other people's house and eat their food. Now, if you're in an an administrative role in our staff network, let me speak to you for just a minute. You want to be doing administration pastorally. Okay, so now I get to pick on Rachel. First step, we're setting up for welcome group. She's there with the administrative hat on. She's setting up the food. She's getting everything's set and ready. She's making sure I have everything I need. And yet, she's sitting down at the table. She's connecting with people. She's warm. She's affable. She can't help but connecting and and bonding to people. So she's there in an administrative role, but she's doing it pastorally. Or how about Sophia on a Sunday morning with just her cheerfulness? That cheerfulness means so much, even though we all know the mountain of details that Sophia has carrying around in her mind. And the temptation to just be all about the details, and we got to get these things done, and this is what, and what happens if we don't have a communion station? And, you know, at the end of the day, if we don't have a communion station, we can flex on that. That's, that's a failure we can, we can sustain. Um, but to have that pastoral presence, even as you go about administrative tasks, um, that is the heart with which we do even our administration. And, yeah, administration... Uh, is so important because it makes pastoring easier. We don't want chaos or disorder in our church. And even those of us in pastoral roles have administrative tasks that are a part of how we pastor. But the big picture, whenever you're doing administrative tasks, is this, just to keep the heart of it, is this is about the people that we're serving. Feeding, the caring, the knowing of the people of God. So even in administrative roles and even in administrative task-oriented moments, This is the heart with which we carry out those tasks. Now, to speak to those in more explicitly pastoral roles, if you are in a pastoral role, or keep this in mind if someday you are, it means that we have to understand and accept that we are not task-oriented first and foremost. The world loves to measure productivity by things that can be quantified. And relationships, knowledge, and knowing people can't really be quantified. And so we have to resist the urge to prove ourselves through quantifiable productivity and the getting of tasks done 
first and foremost. And again, there's a, obviously there's a place for getting tasks done. But we're not task-oriented first and foremost. We must be people-oriented. This means we have to be able to handle interruptions. So last week, I had a Wednesday where I had one meeting the whole day. And I was so excited. I was going to crank on some of those administrative tasks. I was excited about that. And then someone showed up, unplanned, which led to an hour and a half conversation and a confession, which then necessitated an hour-long conversation with another person later that same day. And there went most of the time that I had set aside to take care of the stuff that was starting to feel really pressing. We have to be able to sustain interruptions like that. Hospital visits. That can oftentimes not come at a convenient moment for us. Somebody's in a life tragedy. More and more, I'm just finding out to to even just pick up the phone call and make a connection. A little goes a long way. It's worth it. I think Stuart, I've heard Stuart say, it is a tough call. When you've got, when you're balancing so many things, it's a tough call. But I've heard him say, I've never regretted going. I've never regretted saying, you know, I just, I need to get over to the hospital. I need to see that, that sheep. Or I need to get over to that person's house and be with them while they're sitting with this news. Caveat, okay, there's the really needy person. You can probably think of somebody in your mind right now. Is there a place for boundaries? And the answer is yes, of course. But the main reason for boundaries is not to protect myself. The main reason for boundaries is to paraphrase Jesus from later in in John 10. I have other sheep too, you know. When he says, I have other sheep, we're not of this fold, I'm going to go get them. We might say, "I, I have other sheep. And it's for the sake of the other sheep, I can't give all of my time to you. I can think of one person in particular who calls me almost every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and sometimes I have to just ignore that phone call um, and, and not respond to the texts. And I try to keep in touch with him often enough that he knows I still care about him. And definitely when I see him on Sunday morning, I try to give him my full attention for that moment, but I also have those, those phrases or those things where I have to say, I would, I would love to talk more, I have to go here now, or those times where I don't pick up the phone for several days in a row. And it's not because I don't love him, it's because I have other sheep. And he would take as much time as I would give him, but that would start to infringe upon the other sheep who also need time, care, and attention. And definitely one thing that we're trying to figure out as we're revamping a lot of pastoral care right now, and I'm talking with Megan a lot about this these days, um, really appreciate her wisdom on this, but we're trying to figure out how is it that not just the squeaky wheels get the grease? How is it that we are actively tending to the whole flock. So something to keep in mind, something for us to keep getting better at. And now you may be asking, though, what if task-oriented is how I'm wired? What if that's my personality? Am I disqualified for, for being a pastor or for pastoral roles? And the answer is no, absolutely not. In fact, I would say 80%, that's how I am wired. I'm a task-oriented person. And if that surprises you, let me tell you a couple stories. So when I was a freshman at Wheaton, a good buddy of mine, Joe Winesettle, who is still a friend of mine 19 years later, uh, we met as, as freshmen at Wheaton College, got to be close friends then, and 
One day I was sitting at my desk working away at something very important, I'm sure, and he popped in the door and just started talking to me. And I started talking to him, but without looking up. <laughs> I just, I kept working and kind of talked to him and kept working. And finally, he just said, I'm so thankful he said this. He's like, you know, Brett, if you're going to be a pastor someday, you have to at least look people in the eye when you talk to them. I was like, oh, <laughs> ouch. Um, or I see this in myself on Friday, which is my day to cut the lawn, get the groceries, fix things around the house. You know, it's, it's a day that we're working pretty hard at the Kroll House. It's not our day for rest. But it's a day for work that's not res work. And when I get interrupted on a Friday, that's when I realize, oh, I am task-oriented. I've got my to-do list, and I don't like it when so-and-so shows up on the driveway or somebody gives a call or there's something that I need to tend to. So I am fundamentally not a, a people-oriented person. I'm task-oriented. But I, I learned as a youth pastor in those first probably two to three years, I started realizing, oh, my task is people. And so I've had to learn how to be people-oriented in, in order to fulfill my task and my duty. So if you also identify as a task-oriented person, then you absolutely can be a pastor, uh, as long as you understand and know that's what I need to grow into and impress into, and that's how I do it. So I'm going to read to you uh, now, it's, I think, in your notes, a quote from Something Beautiful for God, which is, Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist, his uh, interview and, and just his time spent with uh, Mama T, Mother Teresa. So he says, critics may say Mother Teresa saved so many people, so many children, but even this is a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. There must be some other way of doing it, some collective solution, something more efficient, right? And Mother Teresa argues, I do not agree with the big way of doing things. To us, what matters is the individual. To get to love the person, we must come in close contact with him. If we must wait till we get the numbers, then we will be lost in the numbers, and we will never be able to show love and respect for the person. I believe person to person, every person is Christ for me. And since there is only one Jesus, that person is the only person in the world for me at that moment. And people who knew Mother Teresa, they would talk about how people would come into her presence, and she, she would then leave, or they would leave, and they would just burst into tears. They would just start weeping for the love that they felt from her in that moment. Certainly something to aspire to. All right, so the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. I want to talk a little bit now about the power of words. So we think about a shepherd, and you think about Psalm 23, the rod and the staff. Okay, those are metaphors for something. Those are the tools that the shepherd uses to, to do his job. What are our rod and staff? I and mean, we don't have literal rods and staffs except for the crozier, but even that one's not real because you can take it apart into three pieces, okay? So we know that's not a real staff. What is our rod and staff? What are the, the tools that we use? Well, the main currency 
of pastoring is words. Again, Jesus said, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. So our words, that's the currency with which we shepherd. That's our treasury. Um, All right, I'm going to read to you a little bit now from Gregory. Spiritual director, or we would say that the pastor, the shepherd, should be discerning in his silence and profitable in his speech. So knowing when to be silent and to hold back our words and when to speak and that our words would be profitable, that we wouldn't waste our breath. Otherwise, he might say something that should have been suppressed or suppress something that should have been said. For just as reckless speaking leads someone into error, so also indiscreet silence leaves in error those who might have been instructed. Far too often, reckless shepherds who fear to lose human favor are afraid to speak freely about what is right. They flee and hide themselves in silence whenever a wolf approaches. And he goes on to talk about the importance of our words, and and he's speaking not even primarily about, about preaching. He's talking about pastoral conversations. He's talking about those prayer appointments that we have, the, the, the conversations before, during, or after those ministry events, when we are out to coffee with a parishioner, when we're having lunch, when we're uh, in those moments where we're among the sheep. And we would say, every time we're with the sheep, can we see that as an opportunity for healing, for counsel, for correction, for encouragement, above all, for prayer? I have a friend uh, who, you know, what I love about him is you're almost never in a conversation without him saying, oh, you know what, Let, let's, let's pray about this. <laughs> and his ability to just stop and say, no, we, we need to pray about this. Believing that prayer is our most powerful weapon against the enemy and our most powerful tool for building others up. But all these things, the encouragement, the counsel, the prayer, all, all this happens in words. Words convey meaning, thoughts, ideas, truth. So thinking carefully about our words, um, that's how we pastor people. And I would say that the most important and effective sermons I've ever preached have probably been the ones that were maybe a minute or two long and before an audience of one. And I don't mean God. (laughs) When I say an audience of one, I mean one person. We're just in a conversation. There's that moment of inspiration where you're sharing the Lord's heart for that person. You're, you're sharing good news for them. You're, you're giving that counsel, an exhortation, an admonition. And you realize, wow, that was a life-changing, that was a transformative moment. So our words must be words of faith. Our sheep don't need the wisdom of the world. The purveyors and sellers and profiteers of conventional wisdom are all about and readily accessible at the next hyperlink. But what your sheep need, the people you're shepherding, what they need in order to follow Jesus is they need to hear words of faith, words of life. Like Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of life. To wh- where else will we go? To whom else will we go? You have the words of life. So again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And up to this point today, we've been using this as a model for our own shepherding, saying the sheep need to hear our voice, the sheep need to be familiar with us. But of course, in the original context, Jesus is ultimately saying, 
My sheep need to hear my voice. And we would say, absolutely. What the sheep need more than anything, more than anything I could give them, is they need to hear the voice of Jesus. It's ultimately about his voice. But of course, how do we hear the voice of Jesus? Well, we hear it in Scripture. Rarely and sometimes we we have what we would call vision and divine revelation. Oftentimes, we hear the voice of Jesus in the mouth of a brother or a sister. Oftentimes, we hear God speaking to us through the voice of one of his under-shepherds. So our goal and the test of our shepherding is how much in our words we sound like Jesus, and we help the people who are hearing us identify and recognize his voice among the cacophony of voices that are vying for their attention and allegiance. So how much is our voice like his voice? How much are our words like his words, both in content, what we're saying, but also in tone, how we're saying it? And there's no way you can fabricate that or manufacture that except in our own hearts becoming more and more and more like Jesus. It's out of the overflow of that heart that then our words take on his words and his, his uh, tone. I could say more about uh, man-pleasing, the fear of man, flattery, which is not the same thing as encouragement. Flattery is not encouragement. Jesus was never a flatterer. Um, Maybe just uh, read from Second Timothy. Preach the word, Paul says to Timothy. And I would say again, not just, we're not just talking about sermons. We're talking about our words and when we're exhorting and counseling and pastoring others. I would paraphrase this and say, have the word of God in your mouth. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So that's why we have to be on guard against our own temptation to flatter or to want to say the thing that we know they're going to want to hear And instead, we have to be grounded in the words of truth, listening to the voice of Jesus, grounded in, yes, the Bible, in his words. So to reiterate an earlier point, we're sheep first. And the quality of our following Jesus will directly correspond to the quality of our leading others to follow him, knowing his voice, hearing his voice. Okay, as we continue uh, in John 10, so we see that not only do the sheep hear the voice of Jesus and know the shepherd, uh, we also see Jesus in verse 11. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand And not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So shepherds lay down their lives for the sheep. Our shepherding must be cruciform in the shape of the cross. And as we reflect on Jesus, our great shepherd, isn't it amazing that our shepherd is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that our shepherd is the Lamb who was slain from before the foundations of the world. So to redeem the sheep, he became a lamb destined for slaughter. That thought is awe-inspiring and wonderful and powerful and beautiful. It's also instructive. Our shepherding must be cruciform. So again, this begins in our own sheepness, that our cruciform shepherding begins that as sheep, we continue to allow the Lord to crucify in us our ambition, our pride, jealousy, vanity, idolatry, the sins and the passions of the flesh, all of, all of these things, that our life in Christ, that ongoing process of sanctification we ourselves must know the paradigm of conviction, repentance, and confession, and amendment of life. We must know how that works. We must know why that's hard. We must be constantly doing that. That's how we are cruciform in our shepherding. That's how we can call others into that as sheep. And then how, as shepherds, uh, does that cruciform shepherding take form. Well, we're really learning this right now in this season, aren't we? We're really learning in this season things that we may have known before, but we're just getting a real good dose of again, that in leadership, you'll always be disappointing someone. And so again, if you're prone, if you're prone to the fear of man or what's called man-pleasing or caring about the esteem of others, and, and you're considering pastoral work, you know, I would say to you, run far away. Run, 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 run away from pastoral work. On the other hand, I would say, jump right in. Jump on in. Because the work of ministry will pummel out of you and out of all of us that fear of man and the man-pleasing. So great. Come on in. We're called to joyfully bear criticism and disappointments, oftentimes of the very people we are seeking to serve. And we are to do this not with hardened or bitter hearts. I speak aspirationally now. And if that wasn't enough, we're in equal danger of, of succumbing to the temptation of contempt. You may succeed at not hardening your heart, or you may succeed at not being bitter, but only because you look down on the sheep with contempt. I'm a pastor suffering the reproach of these sheep gladly. And it's with an air of haughtiness and superiority that you're able to maintain distance from bitterness, but only because you're unaffected, not with a holy detachment, but with haughtiness and arrogance. So the knife edge that we must walk upon the middle way is to suffer and bear reproach without arrogance or contempt and with the heart of the shepherd to say, this might be a sheep in need of rescue. 
Their pain that's causing them to turn on me right now is a sign that they need healing. And again, this is without contempt or an air of superiority, without looking down on them, but instead viewing the most troubling people from this lens can actually produce compassion in us and wisdom. I'm being acquainted now, becoming acquainted with this person's wounding. Perhaps I'll be able to help them. And even if not, at least I'll know how to pray for them. And that can happen if you are leading a church. That can happen if you're discipling one or two or three people in a more in-depth, up-close discipling relationship. You press in with gentle challenge or, or even with a, to cleanse a wound, and they turn on you and accuse you of afflicting the wound. And uh, maybe this will be an encouragement that you've heard before, but from Theodore Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and there's no effort without shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So as pastors in this season at this time at resurrection, we're going to learn how to do this better. But one thing that's not an option for us is abdication, giving up or giving away of our pastoral charge and responsibility. We're going to learn how to do it better and more cleanly. We're going to learn, here's where other people in the body of Christ can do their part. Here's our part. We're going to learn that. We're going to grow. We're already doing that. But one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to give up and we're not going to turn away from hurting and needy people. So you'll find yourself in conversations where you're being attacked, accused, misjudged, unfairly treated. You or or resurrection, it doesn't matter because it all feels personal, doesn't it? And there you are, unable to defend yourself, doing your best to listen, acknowledge, own what you can, and in the end, desperately praying inside that you can find one thing to say or to pray for this person that will bless comfort or encourage them, this person who in the moment is tearing you apart. That's cruciform shepherding. And the only way we can do this is to keep constant in the practice of extending forgiveness, often and total, specific, naming the ways we're feeling pummeled, hurt, and releasing those completely from the debts. And of course, with confession and that softness of heart to say, and Lord, here's where I've erred. Here's where I need to grow. And it's painful to admit. All right, let's move on. Go to John 21. 
And you know, maybe instead of reading it, I'll just tell the story. It's a familiar one. So they're by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus shows up. It's the resurrected Jesus, and he, he calls to them while they're in the boat. Peter jumps out of the boat. There they are. They have breakfast on the shore. There's a coal fire, just like the coal fire that was burning in the courtyard when Peter denied Christ. And three times Jesus asks, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, yes. And each time he says, yes, Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. And the threefold answer from Jesus, yes, is, is to match the threefold denial of, of Peter, but it's also simply to emphasize, do you, do you love God? If you love God, you will eventually become consumed by love for His people. So what do we do when working with the people of God actually has the opposite effect and begins to wear us down? Well, actually, the answer, again, just to reiterate and drive home the point, the answer to grow in our love for others is not to try to grow in our love for others. That will just be a dry well, a cracked cistern, a brittle hope. Instead, it's to go back to, to worship and to love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And the more we grow in that childlike love for God, in our worship of Him, in our ability to just look up, even when we're wearied from the task before us, to look up and to praise Him, to see His goodness, to call it out in the night. As we grow in our love for Him, that's when those wellsprings become rejuvenated and the love for others begins to flow. So I'd love to do one more exercise here. Um, turn to your neighbor and just ask the question. As we talk about feeding the sheep and that threefold, feed the sheep, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. And going back to Ezekiel 34, I think there's a reason it's number one on the job description, feeding the sheep. I think that is the most important item on that job description. I think Jesus makes that clear here in John 21. So turn to your neighbor and just discuss for a minute what are people hungry for? And I don't want us to parse now good desires and bad, you know, sinful versus holy. Just what are the good things that people are hungry for? All right, take a minute and discuss. All right, I'd love to hear just some of, of what you're saying. Um, what are people hungry for? Okay, Caleb's official job is the runner. And he's got something to say, so you're going to start us out, Caleb. Uh, one of the things you're talking about... Um, or one thing I was thinking of is like there's, in a lot of ways, there's a, um, oftentimes people come with a, a real longing for forgiveness. Um, you know, they, they may know that something they've done in the past or, or something, this mistake that they made that kind of haunts them. Like they, they either, you know, kind of try to justify it or they try to like hide it away. 
And I think oftentimes they, they come saying, like, you know, am, I, am I really forgiven of this? There's that desire for, for that healing to come with that. Awesome. A primal need to know I can be forgiven for the wrong things I've done. Gospel of grace. That feeds the soul. Who else? What are people hungry for? Cameron? We had a, a long list, but our sort of summary list was peace, belonging, meaning, and love. Peace, belonging, meaning, and love. Yeah, I think we can all resonate with that. Neff? Uh, community and wholeness. Like, just the world feels pretty broken for most people, both mm -hmm. like in a collective sense and an individual sense. And so yeah. connection to people and also feeling like there's a wholeness in that as well. Yeah. Uh, on a similar note, um, just that things are as they should be. Um, and uh, mm. somewhat connected with that is a, is a sense of just um, satisfaction. Uh, Addy compared it to like eating a full good meal versus snacking on goldfish and ice cream. <laughs> um, that, that, that deep mm. satisfaction that where, where no need, you, there's nothing to want and you're able to actually be yourself in the world. Um, Who's able to give these things? Oftentimes in our shepherding, we're going to feel like Philip when Jesus pointed to the multitude and said, you feed them. I mean, that's what he's saying right now. You feed them. Feed them with what? Peace. Tell them that everything's going to be all right. Give them that sense of fullness, love, meaning, purpose. And it, right away, we're going to say, I can't do that. I cannot give them what they need. And Jesus will say, absolutely. I don't need you to. But I need you to be me for them in this moment. That open channel, that channel of grace. And I would say, uh, maybe to sum up a lot of what I'm hearing you say, I, I can't tell you the number of times, it feels like almost every week, I'm in a conversation with somebody and they're saying a lot of things, but I could just boil it down to, okay, I, I'm hearing them say, I need to be seen, I need to be seen, I need to be known. I need to be known. I need you to say that you see me. I need to know that I matter. And I'm met with two realities at the same time, that colossal need and my five loaves and two fish. And that still overwhelms me. I'll, I'll, I will often be in those conversations, and it, internally I'm overwhelmed. Where, where outside I'm like smiling and nodding and you know, showing all the nonverbal cues that I'm listening. And inside I'm thinking, here we go again. But the more practiced I get at these conversations, the more I'm able to turn, accept, this is the conversation I'm having. This, I'm meeting a deep primal, I'm not meeting, but coming up against a deep primal need in a person that only God can fill and give and satisfy. What do I do? And in that moment to say, I can love this person now. 
I can give them the manna that they need for today, and I can trust them, entrust them to the Lord, and trust the Lord to take care of them for the rest of their needs. And I oftentimes will find at the end of those conversations a, a brief word, a time of prayer, just the fact that I was there listening and not getting defensive and not getting overwhelmed, at least externally, but doing my best to just be the presence of Jesus for them in that moment, they will say, that was what I needed today. That was what I needed. And all of a sudden, the 5,000 are fed. Because there's never a moment where we are not able to love. There's never a moment where we will not have enough resources or not have the presence of Jesus to love and to give in that moment not everything that they need, but what they need for that moment. And if we know that that's our job, to feed this sheep, the daily bread they need for right now, and if we can entrust them to the Lord for all the things that we can't do for them, then in peace we will be able to shepherd as well. And speak those words of life and faith. Kevin, as you were talking, I thought about what we were saying earlier. If they, don't, they don't need the wisdom of the world. In those moments, they need words of faith to point them to the one who's holding it all together, as Steve so beautifully did on Sunday. We can do that. All right, in our closing minutes here, um, Jesus said, feed my sheep. He also said, tend my lambs. And I think we could look at items two through seven on the Ezekiel 34 job description. Two through seven can, can fall under that tending category. That's what it looks like to tend the sheep. So how do you heal the sick, strengthen the weak, bind up the injured, go after the straying and rescue the lost and rule with meekness? How do you do that? Well, again, back to what we've been saying all along. So much of our pastoring comes out of our own being pastored by Jesus. So to know what ails the soul, what are the ailments of the soul that God is asking us to cure? And what cures the soul? How, what are the remedies? How does this work? The beginning that Bernard and the mystics and, and many others would say is to know thyself. That was a very important phrase for the mystics, but it's not express yourself, know yourself in the way we think of it in today's context. It, it's very much different because it's know your sinfulness is, is how they always meant it. Know your brokenness, know your woundedness, know what ails your soul. Because the more you're acquainted with your own fallenness, brokenness, sinfulness, your own temptations, your own proclivities uh, to wander, the more you're going to understand the soul of, of other humans as well. Because as I said before, we are, in many ways, we are the same. Humanity is. There is such an overwhelming commonality in the human soul that to know yourself is then to know human nature. And what ails human nature? So there's a quote I won't read there from Bernard on uh, consideration. His word consideration just means prayer and discernment in prayer. Um, so you can read that later if you like. Uh, what cures the soul? Well, as we were just talking about, Caleb, as you beautifully said, the gospel is the foundation for the cure of souls. It's the foundation, and we never graduate. We never move on from repentance of the things 
that this person has done wrong, so to invite them into repentance. It was John the Baptist's message. It was Jesus' message when he first began his ministry. So it is the foundation in the beginning of the healing of a soul is to call them to repent, not to heap shame on them, but because we know, as the proclaimers of the gospel, we know the good news that is waiting for those who humble themselves to confess. And we know the, the prisons and the chains that will continue to hold somebody down as long as they hold on to their sin or keep it in the dark. So with joy, we call people to repentance. We also call people to forgive those who have sinned against them. I won't say more about it now, but this, this is the center of the gospel, receiving forgiveness, extending forgiveness. And almost most of the, the healing needs and the blocks to healing and all of that are going to come from or be related to those two realities. But now, moving on, going deeper into the knowledge of the cure of souls, there is more to human nature and, and human psychology. There's, there's plenty more to grow in beyond that foundation. So we never graduate from that foundation, but we can grow beyond it. That's where reading Gregory's pastoral rule, that's where just our experience, just doing the work of pastoral ministry, we, we gain and we learn, okay, what else? Uh, in addition to the core gospel truths, what else is helpful? What are those remedies? What are those ways, those practices, those words of truth? What are the ways that the human soul is cured? And I, if I were to say the, the brilliant insight of Gregory, when you read through the rest and the whole of his work, is his ability to, to see and discern all the ways that as humans we, we love to disguise our vices as a virtue. So he goes through, and his whole thing is, you know, you, you have to counsel and pastor the bold differently from the timid. And then he'll go through, here are the temptations unique to the bold. Here are those unique to the timid. And as you're reading, you're totally convicted because you're like, oh, I thought all these things that I did as a timid person were, were like humble and holy. And he's, he's showing me how they're actually sinful and they're vices. And I've been calling them virtue all along. Oh, my goodness. You do not escape. Uh, the, the discerning eye of Gregory the Great. It, it, you, you understand all the ways that the human soul can hide uh, vice in the disguise of virtue. So that, that's the overweening insight and the beauty of that and helps us as we're pastoring others to, to get into those deeper levels of discernment of, okay, I think this person is deceiving himself or herself. They're, they're using really good reasons and even holy-sounding reasons to further and continue in unhealthy patterns, and, and I need to help them see that, and I need to call them into healing. That, that's truly the art of the cure of souls, which is what we're called to do. It's no one-size-fits-all. Each person is unique, and this is where, yes, there's a commonality to human nature, and then there's also an incredible uniqueness to every individual. So, Read pastoral rule, get experience, learn from other pastors. We're just going to learn this as we go, but there is more to discover. There's another great quote there from Gregory about pastoral authority and holding intention. Uh, we need to be gentle, but not so gentle that we become lax in our kindness. We need to uh, discipline, but not be so harsh that we exasperate our sheep. So read that, it's beautiful. I'll finish with a final word from the mother, Mama T. This is her prayer that she prayed every day. 
Dearest Lord, may I see you today and every day in the person of the sick, and whilst ministering to them, minister to you. Though you hide yourself behind the unattractive disguise of the irritable, the exacting, the unreasonable, may I still recognize you and say, Jesus, my patient, how sweet it is to serve you. And O oh God, while you are my patient, deign also to be to me a patient Jesus, bearing with my faults, looking only to my intention, which is to love and serve you in the person of the sick, or we might add the sheep, the people of God, the person right in front of me. Amen.